we're swimming in the glorification of polytheist history, polytheist beliefs, polytheist genealogies, and polytheist gods. I mean, we are literally immersed in it. And if we don't understand the language that they're speaking in, and we don't know what we're being brainwashed with, and we don't know, it's not just entertainment. There's nothing that's just entertainment. There's nothing in education that isn't imp um, influenced by the polytheist puppeteers. Uh, it's all for the purpose of polytheism. And so there's nothing secular. It's only a disguise. It's just like evolution. They know it's not true. They're gonna discard that like the bad, fake, junk science it is when the time is right because it's controlled by the polytheists. So. My name's Nick. I'm the owner of Kevlar Joe's and I'm the roaster. I'm an Air Force Security Forces veteran, a dad to three wild boys, and a husband to my wife, Crystal, and a coffee enthusiast. From a family in a small town in Missouri, we started with the simple idea of crafting a perfectly bold cup of coffee. Inspired by wellness and countless pots of stale coffee while deployed, we wanted to craft a bold, clean, and smooth coffee. So we did. And we realized we wanted to share this coffee with our friends. Lord knows we could all use a good cup of coffee right about now. From the farm to your coffee cup, there's nothing like a good, well-crafted and bold cup of coffee. No matter what time of the day, it's there to pick you up, motivate you and relax you. We hope you enjoy our coffee. Be bold, be humble, be Kevlar. And you can find Kevlar Joe's Coffee Company anytime you want at www.kevlarjoe.com. And for listeners of the Dig Bible Podcast, use the code, all caps, DIG20, whenever you're checking out to get a 20% off discount. Enjoy. My name is L.A. Marjoli. This is Dr. Aaron Judkins. This is Trey Smith. This is Ryan Peterson. This is Dr. Judd Burton. This is Timothy Albrino. This is Derek Gilbert, and you're listening to The Dig Bible Podcast. Glad you made it. Come along for the ride as we search for hidden truth, explore historical context, and dig into God's Word to help us understand the past, present, and future of this supernatural world. This is Steve, along with Justin and Ben. And you are listening to the Dig Bible Podcast. Welcome back, all my local guys and gals and long-distance pals. We're back. And we are back today with uh, the author of uh, Genesis 6 Conspiracy, uh, that's uh, actually part two that's coming out in 2024, and also the original Genesis 6 Conspiracy, which, which um, really delved into the Nephilim and, and the present day and, and kind of how how the whole game is being set up. The chessboard is being played all around us. Gary Wayne, I am so glad to have you, and uh, it's good to see you, buddy. Yeah, good to see you, and thank you for inviting me back to your podcast and uh, really looking forward to the conversation today and talking about some things that uh, maybe people haven't heard and 
will help them understand things a little bit better. Well, I, I think that that's, it's such an important thing because we, we've really on this show, we've delved into, um, like I said, I, we've looked into, you know, inspirations like you, like Michael Heiser, like Derek Gilbert, who are kind of front runners on some of these topics now and, and some things that are new, but some things that have been around for a while, but they've been kind of in the, in the background. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not, not everybody. It was, it was more fringe and now things are being accepted more like a reality. And we're seeing, we're seeing this kind of come out and, and it's, you know, one of those things that it's one of those big, I told you so is almost, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And for people who like Derek Gilbert's work or Dr. Heiser's work, um, it kind of is in that same kind of line of thought and, particularly in the new book, in, in book two. So, and the presentation um, is going to be a little bit different in the new book where, I mean, there are, you know, I don't know, there's four or 5,000 or more um, footnotes, but they're not end notes this time because there's so much information and I want the source of uh, the information and whatever else I put in that, that footnote to be right there on the page for the individuals. So if people like what Dr. Heiser was doing on taking things back to Hebrew, um, people are really going to like this because I take it to a whole new, a whole new level. There might be a few areas where we cross over, but I think when we cross over on it, I'll, again, I'll take it to another level throughout the Bible and make sure it has a Christian perspective on it. Um, not that Dr. Heiser doesn't believe in God, but he's more of a Judaic perspective on it, which is good, but there's two halves to the equation, and we always need to be linking uh, the New Testament into it in a way that we approach the Bible as opposed to maybe the Jewish people. Now, it doesn't mean I am taking apart the Jewish religion or the Jewish language in any sort of way, but this book is designed for Christians, and um, because it has so much with uh, New Testament um, information in it in terms of the prophecy. And so when, when people look at the book, I think they're going to say, this, has, this is unique. It's different than the first book, even though it's in the same line, but it's totally unique. And as unique the first book was, this is unique in a completely different way. And for Christians who want to go deeper into the Bible than they've ever gone before and to get a whole new life, if you think the Old Testament came to life through the first book, this is on steroids and taking it into deeper into the Bible and deeper into the original language is on steroids. But hopefully it's done in a way that's entertaining like the first book was so that it's not just like reading an encyclopedia, but because there is a story that flows all the way through it. So. Oh, a hundred percent agree. And I think you're right. I think the when we look at the um, Judeo side of things, it's really important for us to understand as Christians, that's, that's our jumping off point, right? They, they came halfway with us. Looking at it, when you talk about that um, Judeo uh, side of it, I think it's important to understand that's the foundation of Christianity. At the same time, they came halfway with it, right? And then after that is where we took it the next step. And then we can go down that Old Testament road and really look at end time prophecy and what it means. And when we start talking about the 144,000 and things of this nature, but... Um, yep. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that, the Old Testament is the basic platform. 
but just just as Jesus came and took the whole understanding to a level that the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Essenes hadn't considered, um, you know, then let's face it, I mean, he's the Word of God, so he would have an understanding that's significantly higher than uh, the, uh, the rabbis. And so he took it to a whole new level, and, and the whole Testament is built that way. It builds on and gives more information, but is perfectly consistent with the Old Testament. And that's the beautiful thing, and that's where you see some of the preter preternatural nature of the Old and the New Testament is, you know, it spans so many years in length in terms of what it covers, in terms of years, and there's so many different prophets and a space between the Old Testament in a sort of a significant way and the New Testament, because we don't really get much past, you know, the time of uh, the return into Judea after Babylon for scripture, right? Um, mm. And we're relying on sort of like Daniel and his 70 weeks of prophecies and sort of to fill in some of that, that sort of gap. And so there is the Apocrypha for the, for the Maccabees, but that's not part of the standard canon. So when I'm prefacing that, it's, it's the, the nature of the Bible. But again, when I look at the Apocrypha, I don't see contradictions. I only see a consistency there that is otherwise, under, you know, otherwise unexplained unless it's part of a greater knitting of who we are where we came from and where we're going. And there's only two that I know of that are considered Alpha Omega, and that would be God and that would be Jesus. So that's who it comes from, and that's what keeps it stitched together. I think that's an excellent segue, kind of into a, a good talking point for you. And I think um, the important thing is, you know, we look at the historical side of the Bible, and it's always important to look at context right? We're always looking at content. And when we look at, you know, think about the, the way that we look at the Nephilim, for example, you know, we have um, the, the, basically we have a few verses, you know, Genesis 6, 4, you know, on through to the flood and boom, that yeah. short section that kind of describes that whole, basically everything that happens yeah. up to the flood. Yeah. So when we look at the, the fact that that's why it's really important to look at some of those extra biblical texts because these are history like history books that they had at the time, like the Book of Enoch, like other yeah. books of the Apocrypha, that they knew, you know, they had these history books and knew what had happened, so they didn't deem it necessary to necessarily write everything down. Yeah, exactly. So and you know, the other thing to 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 sort of keep in mind is that um it's fine to use extra biblical text, whether it's Apocrypha or other sources, but one should be very aware to measure it up against what the Bible says. So if it's adding additional information, but it's directionally in the right direction, um, as opposed to conflicting what it says in the Bible, will sort of guide you as to whether or not you may want to consider that as some important information. So that's always what I try and do, is I try and bring it back in, in, in a new book. I'll bring in direct sources, uh, you know, like the execration texts or out of Egypt or the Ugaritic texts, uh, mm -hmm. because they have parallels through a polytheist lens that talks about what's happening in the Bible. And it's good to have that other sort of context to it. Whereas in the first book, I'm letting, 
the spurious forces or the polytheist forces or the secular forces speak for themselves as to what they believe. Um, but these are more of the historical records and what, again what I find is if you understand the larger context you can look at these other uh, writings and you can fit them in and it, it will tell you a little bit more and it will be amazingly identical except that they're talking about a pantheon of gods. So, mm -hmm. and, and, and you know the Ugaritic texts, I mean that's old Semitic writing where Hebrew comes out of. So you get root words that are going into the Old Testament in terms of the Hebrew language. So it, it is a great source to take those Hebrew words back to the original Semitic and see how they're being used in the Ugaritic texts. And it just provides extraordinary um, more context to and, and a veracity to it because it really starts to, I mean, you're talking about King Og, I mean it just starts to bring things to life in terms of what the Ugaritic texts are talking about and where Ugarit was in comparison to the Canaanite um, um, you know, tribes and, and, and empires. Um, you know, between Tyr and Mount Hermon. I mean, it's right in the middle of the action, and it is a very, very important piece of history that, that dovetails perfectly into the Bible from an accuracy perspective. I 100% agree. I just, I, I want to kind of go over that and think about so how some of this stuff, you know, we talk about it in a historical view and we really look at that. Um, and, and I love because people like you are some that some, are somebody that we stand on the shoulders of because I don't have that training. I don't have that background. So I look to you. I, I like, like I said, I look to Mike Kaiser. I look to, to um, uh, Derek Gilbert. I look to many people like this that have more information and that we can take that information and kind of go and take the next step. But I think it's interesting how some of this stuff historically, and you brought up King Og, which I think is, is a pretty interesting one, that we see some of this stuff starting to infiltrate our society, or it has always been infiltrating our society even today. And I wanted to show you this. I wonder if, if you've ever seen this, but I found this online. It's a Disney cartoon yeah. that's the search for Og's Iron Bed. Really? I, from I, the 60s. That's from when? That's from the 60s. Oh, wow. And it says so, Og's Iron Bed. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we have this stuff infiltrating our culture, you know, starting way back, obviously. Yep. It never went away. Yeah. But we we see it changing, and, and, and we see a change now as far as the way things are going that we're starting to glorify uh, the things that we um, condemned in the past. Yeah. Yeah, you I know, think, you think about them. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that is we're swimming in the glorification of polytheist history, polytheist beliefs, polytheist genealogies, and polytheist gods. I mean, we are literally immersed in it. And if we don't understand the language that they're speaking in, and we don't know what we're being brainwashed with, and we don't know. It's not just entertainment. There's nothing that's just entertainment. There's nothing in education that isn't Im um, influenced by the polytheist puppeteers. Uh, it's all for the purpose of polytheism. And so there's nothing secular. It's only a disguise. It's just like evolution. They know it's not true. They're going to discard that like the bad fake junk science it is when the mm -hmm. time is right because it's controlled by the polytheists. So. We need to understand that. So if you're looking at Disney, you're getting, you know, a Rosicrucian 
and Freemason who is telling the genealogies, the belief system, and the history of the gods and the bloodlines that he believes in. And he talks about, you know, through the fairy tale aspect, you get the bloodlines of the royales through the princesses and uh, princes and kings and queens. And then you also get the spurious offspring with the elementals. I mean, it's just loaded, and it's all true to their belief system. You just, if you haven't learned about it, just understand that they're talking to themselves, but they're preparing you to accept things that you may never thought that you would accept before when it actually becomes announced. So it's just setting the table. Well, think about it. if you go back 50 years and you would have told our parents that we'd be in the history that we are now where people yep. don't know which bathroom to use or, yep. you know, that they can claim to be a cat or anything like this. And we're, we're at a point where if you would have told that 50 years ago, my yep. parents have been like, no. Well, and <laughs> no, it's crazy because as you go back 50 years and as people are raising some of the concerns of the uh, progressive left and the globalist movement and the environmental movement, which is all one group, but just different branches of the same ideology, um, it would be, it, you know, there'd be a saying, well, if we do that little step, it's a slippery slope. And everybody says it's not, it won't go anywhere, but it all does. And it just gets doubled down. And, and, and no matter what the problem is, they keep doubling down and making it worse. They keep promising utopia and only deliver dystopia. And there's nothing that's going to change about that as we get closer to the end time. And if we're in the fig tree generation, like I think we are, I think we're starting to see things picking up speed that is not going to resolve any of the world's issues. It's just going to destroy the world if it was permitted to go to its conclusion. 100%. Now, I guess, you know, in your first book, you talk a little bit about modern day Nephilim, right? And, and what the agenda is. And I would say the majority of our listeners um, understand some things about bloodlines and things of that nature, but feel free I kind of want your perspective of how, and I know you got one, but uh, <laughs> I want your perspective on how you kind of view where we're at with this. Yeah. What what modern day Nephilim, like go into detail, because, you know, we're not seeing Goliath yeah. walking down the street, you know, the yeah. same way. Yeah. So the first question, and I used to ask this a fair bit when I first started out, and I think it's good to sort of return to the question and particularly like with King Charles being crowned and all of that ritual and ceremony that goes back into the mists of time is what makes a king? What makes a queen? What gets them elevated to be almost godlike status, uh, to be superior humans? What makes a royale? Uh, and most people haven't really thought about that. That it's more than just a government. It's a higher, perceived higher level of government, you know, higher than a president or a dictator, even though they may be, you know, sort of similar, but not in the mythos of it. And they keep track of their genealogies back into the mists of time, back to Nephilim and back to Rephaim and back to a celestial godfather, one of the fallen angels or the, or the Nephilim. So if you look at that word, Royale, and I use a word in the first book called Rex Deus or Rex Deus, Kings of God. Um, just look at the name Royale, and I cover this in the new book, and it's, it's old French for king, for Roy, 
and it goes back to Regal and to Rule and to Indo-Aryan, which is basically Raphaim and, and, and uh, Nephilim language to Rule. And Al, which is a transliteration uh, in the Arab, some of the Arab, Arabic languages of El, which is the Hebrew word for a god or an angel. So this is another term for a king of God, and a royale is defined as being part of a dynastic bloodline, and that this goes back to it, and their authority comes from the God that they swear their oath to. So when King Charles is swearing an oath to God, he's not swearing an oath to the God of the Bible. He's swearing an oath back to the geneal genealogical um, connection back to the original fallen angel who is the original patriarch of his bloodline as a, as a celestial godfather. So, and to specific Nephilim and Raphaim as it comes down. Now there may be other scion bloodlines that are grafted in that will help in ennobling it and making it even more of a royale, pure royale bloodline, but that's what they, that's what they believe. And whether or not we want to believe it or not, isn't really the point, um, but we ought to be aware of, if we don't believe it, we ought to be aware of that they believe it, and it's what they do with that belief system that makes sense. So, in the new book, I, I'll cover this off from a post-Diluvian perspective, and the post-Diluvian giants, which are the Raphaim, and Raphaim is used 25 times in Old Hebrew, um, only twice as it's translated directly for a tribe of giants in Genesis 14 and Genesis 15. The other times it's just translated as giants. So Nephilim is only translated three times, once in Genesis 6 and once in Numbers 13.33. And the Rephaim are a little bit distinct from the Nephilim and their post-Diluvian. I won't go too far down that rabbit trail right now because that's not the question. And so most of the bloodlines will go back to the Raphaim. Uh, in, and even though in their belief system they also believe Nephilim survived the flood and there will be other ones that would be sort of scion into that. Or if they survived it, it might even be the original bloodline. So depending on what you believe and how giants show up after the flood, how legitimate that trans-flood genealogical line is. And in the Ugaritic text, it talks about Baal and Ashtaroth as the ones who created the original RPM, which is the non-vowel old Semitic language, and it's transliterated in the Ugaritic text into English as Rapiu and Rapium, and Raphaim as it would be in uh, the Hebrew, R-E-P-H-I-A-M, or A-I-M, as, as the male plural, and in Old Hebrew it would be RPM. And so just as you might see some versions of Nephilim referred to Nepal, that H sound is kind of the, H letter is kind of a addition into uh, the Hebrew language as it evolves down through history, and it's silent. So even though like Strong's would have Nephilim as pronounced with an F, it was originally Nephilim, and same with Raphaim, it would be Raphaim, um, which starts to get you closer to the older Semitic, but these are bloodlines that have a distinction in terms of their fertility 
the Raphaim versus the Nephilim before the flood. The Nephilim procreated in great numbers. The Raphaim have a fertility issue after the flood. Hey guys, what's up? Tom Dunn here from Through the Black. We have launched our new ministry outreach, No More Dead Babies. And the website is nomoredeadbabies.com. We want you to go to that website and get a free t-shirt, okay? Um, and uh, we want you to join the movement, okay? We need soldiers to step up and say that they're gonna be a voice for the voiceless, okay? Guys, we've never done anything like this before. This is a big deal, and I don't know who all is ready for it out there, but it's time to step up, okay? And we're asking you to go to the website and order the shirt. The shirt is free, but you gotta pay for shipping, okay? Um, and uh, we're gonna ship it out to you as soon as we get it. You, you tell us what size you need, and then we're gonna send you the t-shirt, okay? Join us. Uh, the goal is to get thousands of these shirts. I keep pushing this. I think this boldness can be contagious, contagious, contagious. My name's Nick. I'm the owner of Kevlar Joe's and I'm the roaster. I'm an Air Force Security Forces veteran, a dad to three wild boys, and a husband to my wife, Crystal, and a coffee enthusiast. From a family in a small town in Missouri, we started with the simple idea of crafting a perfectly bold cup of coffee. Inspired by wellness and countless pots of stale coffee while deployed, we wanted to craft a bold, clean, and smooth coffee. So we did. And we realized we wanted to share this coffee with our friends. Lord knows we could all use a good cup of coffee right about now. From the farm to your coffee cup, there's nothing like a good, well-crafted and bold cup of coffee. No matter what time of the day, it's there to pick you up, motivate you and relax you. We hope you enjoy our coffee. Be bold, be humble, be Kevlar. And you can find Kevlar Joe's Coffee Company anytime you want at www.kevlarjoe.com. Enjoy. And it gets to be a, a large issue for them. So in the Ugaritic text, they're trying to bring Baal and Ashtaroth back to create more Raphaim. And of course, they can't bring Baal and Ashtaroth back. These are the post-Diluvian gods versus El and his pantheon of gods are the parent gods. They already, the parent gods went to the abyss before the flood for the same crimes the offspring gods do when they take over after the flood. So by this time in the Ugaritic text, Baal and all of the Baalim that are talked about in the Old Testament are in the abyss prison, the pit prison, for the same crimes as El and Kronos and all of the parent gods Anu in, in Sumeria and all around the world. And so when you look at the word Ugarit, uh, it has a word in there, Ug and Arit. And, and both go back to Hebrew and Old Semitic. And in, the, in Ezekiel 32, there's people called the terrible ones. And these are ones that are in the pit prison. And they're speaking to Pharaoh, a Raphaim bloodline uh, royale. And he's a terrible one too. And these terrible ones are the ones who did horrible things while they lived on earth and have been slain. And they went to the pit prison. So you got Nephilim, you got Raphaim. The worst of those ones called the terrible ones are in the sides of the 
pit as it's described in Ezekiel 32 and Isaiah 14. Now, that word terrible one, in singular form, it would be erit, but in the plural Hebrew form would be eritim. And so the terrible ones, as, as I like to call them in, in the new book. Well, that's the word that's in Ugarit. And Ug, uh, U-G, goes back to uh, Hebrew as O-W-G for King Og, and uh, U-W-G, which would be uh, meaning like round and stout, just as the giants were you know, very wide and stocky and strong versus just tall. They're like more WWF wrestlers or linemen in football. They're just built and they're very powerful beings. And so that's the Hebrew word without the W, which is kind of silent in there anyways, almost acting as a vowel, uh, which is U-G. So this Ugarit. And Og is the last of the giants, which goes back to the Hebrew Rapha, and Raphaim for the plural. This is the city, Kiriath, as Kiriath Arba is called, the ancient city of Arba, the city of Arba. This is Kiriath Ug Erit, the city of Ug the Terrible One, before he moves to Mount Hermon um, to rule over the Amorites after the war of Genesis 14, when the Raphaim are basically almost but wiped out by the uh, giant kings coming out of Mesopotamia. And Within the definition of the terrible ones, you get all these descriptions that would apply to a giant and a royale, but childless and infertile. So they have a fertility issue, which is why they're doing fertility rituals in the Ugaritic text. And it's not that it's a semen issue or an ovary issue. It is a female issue. They can't produce enough females. And they also liked, when they attack each other, they like to grab all of the females, and either kill them or put them into their own harem. So uh, they have an issue that's going to come to a head, and for them to survive, they're going to have to intermarry with humans. And that's why you start to see a dilution um, with that. And if, as they do more of that, they have to continue, because if you have a very small gene pool, you're going to develop diseases. So you're going to have hemophiliac disease, or more modern uh, with the royals would be Habsburg jaw disease, right? And all sorts of diseases like that. So they have to continue to be adding um, bloodlines in, and that is going to reduce their size, and it's going to reduce features that they would have inherited from their godfathers over time. So it used to be that the king was the large man, like Lugal Banda in the time of uh, uh, Gilgamesh. And Lugal means a large, tall, giant man. And all the kings of all the nations were giants. And just as Israel wanted a king to be like the other nations, they chose Saul, who was a full head, neck, and part of the shoulders taller than every other Israelite because they wanted to have a giant-like king to rule over them. And of course, David was completely opposite, opposite as the one who was going to establish um, the Israelite um, Magianic bloodline. Um, so as we look at the royals now as they come downstream, these are 
people that look more like us than anybody else and they're not really any alert any any taller or have any of the features because they've lost that but if you look at let's say Akhenaten uh, for example and this is over a thousand years after the flood and uh, you look at that face you have got a protruding chin high cheekbones large wraparound eyes that would shine and light up a room and this big elongated serpentine skull without any sutures and he's shown with uh, without a hat where you can see that and with this huge hat to cover up that cone head so um, he looks like a serpent and most of the kings were produced not all most of the kings and the priests were produced from the seraphim uh, fallen angels and watchers, uh, part of the four groups of watchers, and they had a serpent face. And that's why you see so much serpentine imagery that's amongst the polytheist religions, amongst the gods that they worship, and the kings were described in the beginning looked just like their godfathers. Now, that you brought that up, I actually was going to bring up the, the Egypt side of things, because with Akhenaten, like you said, but you see that with most of um, Egypt, because Egypt's one of those places that actually, because of the climate and whatnot, has kept a lot of those megaliths and things in place. Yeah. So you can see a lot more, and you always see the king is larger than you see his subjects coming to him. Yeah. And I was going to ask you that, and, and with Akhenaten, if if say in that range, he's really that tall and you know that large. Was it one of those things that over throughout time with Egypt? Did you know? Did that same thing happen? Like yes. it's happening now, where it filters down, and yet they still portrayed themselves that way as a symbolic. Well, even means? in even in Akhenaten's time, you have people that are, you know, of quite the size. They may not be the same size as the Nephilim before the flood, um, but you know, Gilgamesh, um, circa twenty one hundred BC, using. So a few hundred years after the flood, I mean, he was son of Lugalbanda and the fertility god Nin, and he was 11 cubits tall and four cubits wide. That means as a king, he'd be measured on a royal cubit, as Josephus says you, you should measure the giants in the, in the covenant land um, because they're all kings and, and royales. And that would make him 19 feet tall and seven feet wide. That's after the flood. And so King Og has a bed that is nine feet, nine cubits long and four cubits wide. And so he's not going to be as big as Gilgamesh, but when he sleeps in that iron bed that is required to be iron yeah. because of the weight uh, that he's going to have, he's going to be on a royal cubit as the king of Edrai and Ashtaroth, which are the cities that I talked about in the Ugaritic texts in the Mount Hermon region. Uh, where Matt, Mount Saphon is, which Mount Hermon is, but Hermon has several different names. Even in the Bible, has is several different names, um, and so that's going to make him minimum twelve feet tall, uh, and likely more like fifteen feet tall, because his bed's going to be sixteen feet long and seven feet wide. So he's going to be probably thirteen, fourteen, fifteen feet tall, and he's going to be four, five, six feet wide, wherever you want to put. Put him in there, and they kept that bed on display at Rabbah for, you know, centuries, so that Israel's descendants would not be deceived as to the giants they fought. They wanted that as a physical representation, so they know who Joshua and Moses and so many of the other 
um, judges and kings through Israelites history were, were fighting against. So you have that height that is even a thousand years after the flood in the time of King Og, which would be equivalent and cognate to uh, Pharaoh or Akhenaten, and he would be likely of a similar size. And you know, of that time frame, you have like Orontes, of, of you know, where the river is made is named after uh, in that region in in the Middle East. Uh, the Greeks found bones. Uh, and the sarcophagus, and they placed them at over 12 feet tall, just like Achilles of the Trojan War, which I would put in a little bit before the 12 or 1300 that history does because of the 600-year variance that the, screws everything up. Um, even in Greek history, it doesn't, it make, doesn't make sense in terms of their history, and um, that's a different rabbit hole. So and he's going to be, Achilles is going to be 12 feet tall. And even 400 years after the Exodus, Goliath is six cubits and a span. As king of Gath, he would be 11 feet three inches tall, uh, which is still a very large size. So, and if you, if you say, well, maybe the Egyptian pharaohs weren't as tall because maybe they had too much interbreeding, um, perhaps. And they have a name for the hybrids, as they like to call them, that I talked about, the humans that would intermarry with the giants so that the Raphaim wouldn't go extinct, and they called them the Shazu. And, and again, they're covered in the new book. And there's other names too, but that's, that's the, the most vivid descriptions of them. And they were seven to nine feet tall. <laughs> and they're ones that are living throughout the land of the covenant along with the Raphaim and other names of branch Raphaim tribes. And so the Amorites are one of those hybrid branches. Uh, they're not as tall as the Raphaim, um, but they are one of the hybrids that are created and are you know, going to work their way into sort of the, the bloodline. So if the Anakim were... Uh, and people may not be aware of this, they were kind, they were blonde hair and blue-eyed and pale skin. And the Horim were red-haired, hazel-eyed and pale skin, just like you get giant descriptions before the flood and, and uh, after the flood uh, of, of those types of hair color, eye color and skin color. And the Amorites were blonde hair and blue eyes as well, and I give the sources on that. And I think they're likely, because they lived amongst the Anakim, <laughs> In, in, in significant locations, a number of locations, I think they were, they took on a Anakim patriarch that begat their tribes. So in Genesis 10, where they don't have a patriarch, just like there's nine patriarchless nations, the only nine of the 70 that are listed in Genesis 10 and First Chronicles that don't have a patriarch, you have uh, these patriarchless ones. That's because if you're a Raphaim, you're not going to be part of the table of nations. You may have founded a nation that's going to be talked about in it, but it's not going to be in the table of nations because those are the ones that come from Noah. So we know that because Rapha, patriarch for the Raphaim, he's not in the table of nations. Arba, the patriarch as the book of Joshua talks about for the Anakim, which are, are, are Raphaim, as they're described as a giant in Deuteronomy 2, they're not, he's not in the table of nations. You don't have 
Raphaim patriarchs in those nations. So um, all of the nine patriarchal nations of the Canaanites, other than you know Canaan, Seth, and, or Seth, not Heth, not Seth, Heth, and Sidon, um, they're named and they're not uh, they're not hybrids. They're you know they're coming from the the Hamitic bloodline. But we get one example. And it sort of shows the value of the female giant and that they're limited. They would start new dynasties, as I talk about in book one. And I mentioned Timna and Eliphaz in book uh, one and in book two. And I highlight at this time that that's a representation of how valuable and how few the females were after the flood with the giants. So you have Timna, who's the daughter of Seir, one of the dukes of Edom in Genesis 36, and so a, a pure blood Horim, Horim are described as giants, Raphaim in Deuteronomy 2 as you take giant back to Hebrew, and she's going to marry to start a new dynasty, uh, Eliphaz, who's the son of Esau, brother to Jacob, who lost all of his um, blessings, inheritance rights, and um, Magianic promise. And they're going to create the Amalekite nation that's going to be the nemesis, one of the nemesis nations to Israel. Um, and these bloodlines uh, that the royals keep, they'll take their bloodlines back to these ancient sources and not just the ones out of the Middle East, but other ones as well. Uh, well, that, there you, that is a, my mind is going to have to read that in your new book to be able to comprehend everything that you just said. Um, I absolutely love it. That's just such a, it's, it's so cool to see the history side of things and really look back at the historical events. And then, like you said, bring in all those extra, extra biblical sources that help yeah. you along that path. Yeah. But, um, say we kind of looked at the history a little bit and I know that's, we just glossed over it overall, but let's, let's say you're a royal family right now. You're part of that and that, um, the descendants of uh, the, the Rephaim, um, you know, we're, we're gearing up towards, you know, the end of time here and, and the, the final battle. What's the game plan? What's the play? What is the, what is the focus right now? Well, the focus right now is to bring on the end time. Uh, the giants are the ones who have been given the divine right to rule by the Council of Gods on Mount Hermon from a biblical perspective uh, to rule the 70 nations that is talked about in Deuteronomy 32 uh, after the flood and just as you had 70 nations as counted by the sons of Adam even though we don't get the Adam's sons listed in the Bible Deuteronomy 32 clearly says there were 70 nations from Adam's sons before the flood that this council reigned over and so these are the visible ones. That's part of who we fight against. It's the invisible ones and the visible ones. The ones who have flesh and blood and the ones who are spirit. And they're working together. And the visible ones have the authority to bring about uh, things on the earth in the direction that their gods want them to go. And so what they would like to do is they would like to have a showdown 
with God in the end times. So they're working to bring that about. So they're the ones that are working behind the scenes and pulling all of the levers to sort of bring this about. And they're going to need a world government. And they're going to need a universal religion and a, and a steady increase of technology to catch up to how it was in the days of Noah with all of the technology that they had uh, before the flood. So all of that is being worked on today. And that When they look at how they see the end time, they see a different outcome, but they, and I think you can make a good case that they were pretty instrumental, uh, these forces, in terms of ensuring Israel got back to the land of the covenant. And I'm not saying the Jewish people are Israel because they're the remnant and God's going to protect the remnant. I mean, let's, let's, be, let's be clear on that, but the Bible doesn't tell us how people of Judah are in the covenant land or have control of Jerusalem in the end time. Just that that happens. So we don't get told how that happens. And that the spurious forces are trying to bring about uh, a transition to the Leviathan Empire, as they like to call it, and the Leviathan system. And so if we look at the seventh empire that's talked about in the book of Revelations, um, and that would be the same as the as the fifth empire talked about in Daniel, you know, two uh, and Daniel seven. So in the metallic and the beast empires, um, and the two that are before that are Assyria. You could make case for Babel, but Assyria comes out of Babel uh, and Egypt. And what a beast empire is? It is a world dominating empire that has a very close association with Israel. And so Israel is back in the end time. So it's time to have the beast empire rise again. And so Israel is going to have their own separate role in um, interaction with this, this beast empire as they're being reconciled back into the covenant, into the original holy covenant, and that extends into the new covenant. And so that's what they're trying to do. So this Leviathan, when I talk about it as a Leviathan and a multi-headed empire, that's what's described in Revelation 12, 13, and 17. And so this empire has 10 kings. And these are going to be, I think, in how I look at how it's coming together, is there's going to be 10 groups of nations, 10 empires. Uh, that will, you know, they will hand over their power to Antichrist at the midpoint of the last seven years, as Revelation 17 talks about. So we ought to see the bloodline starting to sort of resurface in these uh, empires that are going to be rising, and it's going to be very chaotic. But there's going to, it's going to end up with ten kings overseeing ten groups of nations united into one. Uh, universal government ruled over by a universal religion that controls them. Part of the hierarchy is the Babylon religion. It has been with all of the beast empires. And when we look at the beast empires past, these are Raphaim bloodlines. And that we should expect these ten kings to be antichrist wannabes as well, just as the kings of the beast empires would be an antichrist wannabe. So just like in, in John, 1 John 2, 2.18 where you're going to see the Antichrist take power 
and it's called the last time, and it's the hour. Uh, that word time goes back to hora, which is the same word for hour in Revelation 17, when he's going to come to power, and it has relationships with uh, where it's used in, in, in the book of Revelation. In, uh, it's, it has a relationship to the three-and-a-half-year point. So when I say that, when it talks about us being saved by the time of trial, in the book of Revelation or the a time of temptation, uh, that hour is the same word, or it's the same word as the hour in Revelation 17. It's the same time frame in the tame uh, hour that is described when the two witnesses are killed at the midpoint after three and a half years. It's the same hour that Babylon is destroyed in, in Revelation 14, and you get the details in Revelation 18 and in 17. That's that same hour, and that's the time of a Antichrist crowning in himself in, in the temple and the time of the mark of the beast, and that's part of the trial that we're going to be saved from, along with uh, being saved from um, the year of the Lord's wrath, which is the last year of the last seven. So you're going to need to see this empire rise, and that's what we're starting to see. So you have you know, leaders, let's say, like Xi out of China, who um, name comes out of the word XIA, as we would understand, Shah, as in the Shah dynasty that produced all of the royal dynasties in China that come from the dragon creator gods, and he's trying to establish a new empire. So you should start to see more of that starting to come about. And I wonder what King Charles III do, does with England leaving the EEC, and is he going to be coming closer to Canada, the U.S., Australia, as creating that as sort of an English-speaking, British-dominated bloodline as part of those ten kings, with the U.S. obviously taking the lead role because of its power. But still, the bloodline and the king is going to be very, very important. So those are those ten kings that we need to see start rising, and we're starting to see that as we move into uh, the increase of the sorrows guess, in the last generation that Matthew 24 talks about. You talked a little bit about the, and we didn't use the exact terminology, but the golden age, you know, uh, when Noah, you know, was here, the technology and the things that were there prior, and the way I've always kind of, I guess, heard about the golden age and kind of interpreted it is that, you know, the the gods, I'm going to use the, you know, lowercase g quotation mark, the gods walk among us, right? So when we get to this point and we're seeing the potential for this, you know, we're anticipating a new golden age coming forward in the future. You're Like you said, we're seeing a rise in the technology. We're seeing a rise and, and a lot of things are, are, are trending in that direction. How do you see this golden age playing out? What do you, like, how close are we, do you believe? And I promise I won't hold you to it. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I don't I'm tend to right make prophetic right sort of remarks. I'll speculate and tell you why I get there, but <laughs> I try to be careful with that. Yeah, so, yeah, and, and because, you know, people have been wrong all the way throughout history about prophecy, but... I think we are in the fig tree generation, and I think uh, that probably started in 1967 uh, with the taking of Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is kind of the epicenter of end time prophecy. Um, you know, beginning, uh, you know, after you have with the 69 weeks in Daniel 9, 
you have one week that is set aside. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. Israel's no longer in Jerusalem, but in Daniel 9, they're back in the covenant land, and there's a temple, and then the first three and a half years they're going to be permitted to do um, a sacrifice on, 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 on the temple. So uh, I, that's why I think we're in the fig tree generation. Now, the Bible talks about 40 years in the time of the Exodus as a generation. You have seven years out of the book of Psalms and Genesis 6-3 that life is limited to, because of the giant creation, is 120 years. So if it's 70 years, then you could be looking into the 2030s where we might be into the last seven years. If it's 120 years, it might be longer. It doesn't have to go a full generation, but there's a lot of things yet to be done yet. I mean, how do you get to the point where Israel is permitted to do their sacrifices on a wing or an overspreading or an extremity of the temple? Well, you need a universal religion that's going to fold in all the other religions. So you're going to need to see the false prophets of that and to sort of bring that all about. And along with that, um, you need to have those 10 kings that are going to rise up, right? And so you're going to have wars and rumors of war. So we might be starting to see that. And in another parallel lane, we need to see this angelic technology arrive to a level that we're beyond today that's going to be the ultimate system put in by Babylon and then to another level still in terms of at least its application with the mark of the beast. So when we talk about catching up to the days of Noah... Uh, and remember Noah, and those are the exact same words in Genesis 9.29 for the life of Noah. Jesus chose them perfectly because he's the word of God. He would do that. Um, and so we need to understand that there's giants on both sides of the flood. And you have this scenario at Babel where the languages are going to be uh, confused because you have somehow this technology that's being built that um, and being applied that Anything they choose to do, they're going to be able to do is what we're hinted at in, in the Bible. And before the flood, that's where this knowledge was developed that would have been passed on. And I talk in the first book how that happens without getting too far down that rabbit hole. But understand that the, the knowledge and the religions cross the flood just as the giants do. And they show up and we've been dealing with them ever since. But before the flood, they were able to do things like the pyramid. Well, how do we know the pyramid is before the flood? Well, you know, biblically, I like to use 2350 to 2450 for the flood. I like 2348, uh, mm -hmm. um, the original sort of Amundo uh, Lundi or whatever it's called. Lundi. I can't quite come up with the name, but I like that 2348 uh, date. And so you have in the time of Narmer and Menes in Egypt in about 3000 B.C., a depiction on that stella of the 52-degree Great Pyramid. So it's before the flood. We can't build that pyramid today. We can't just, we just don't have the technology to be able to do it. We don't know what the technology was in ziggurats and pyramids before the flood, although some of the parallel stories with the Tower of Babel would suggest that it had significant technology that Nimrod was applying. But again, that's another rabbit hole. But the technology before the flood is what paraded along with the violence 
the antediluvian world into the first apocalypse by fire. And that we get all of these crazy accounts in polytheism of all of these crazy creatures that they were creating, including chimera, which is the modern term for DNA manipulation today. So when the earth had become corrupted, all the earth was corrupted. That's everything on the land, not the sea, on the land. And corrupted is the Hebrew word shakath, which means to decay, to ruin, to pervert, words like that, and to destroy. And so that means all the DNA in the plant genomes were altered. And that's why God is going to call, my speculation, why God is going to call all the animals to the ark, because he knows which ones have not been manipulated with, either sexually or through technology. And so he also calls eight to the ark that are pure in spirit and pure in DNA as well, so that you can start the new without that. And God knows giants are going to show up after the flood because he's Alpha Omega. But he's giving more time for all the names of the book to be in the book of life to be filled. Um, and an opportunity to leave our name in there versus being blotted out. So there's a time frame and an ordained time that God has foreseen and permitted for all of those names to be fulfilled. So we're catching up to that type of technology now. And this angelic technology is beyond, is beyond what we have. But I do believe we're being helped today in the same manner as the angelic technology merged with the seven sacred sciences before the flood. So we're going to need to see interdimensional technology being applied because the gods work, live in another dimension in Sheol or Hades. The pit prison is in another dimension. In polytheism, the gods and the giants would go back between portals between these dimensions and they had this technology to be able to do that, as did some of the other spurious offspring that the fallen angels had created in polytheism, like the elementals that we talked about earlier. So I think we're just catching up to that technology. That's just in a small way. Um, and that it needs to be on a large scale because when you introduce the Babylon system, I mean, it's going to control all trade and probably take a tribute on all of those different transactions and grows incredibly rich and the ten kings are going to grow jealous because of that. And by the time of the mark of the beast, that system complete with the mark is going to control all of that economic trade and everything else that goes along with it. So we have this technology being developed. It hasn't completely merged yet. You've got digital currency that could work in another um, um, <coughs> dimension. Um, and that would have to be part of this, this beast system as well. You've got AI that is required to be matched with quantum computing, which takes you into these other dimensions so that you can do multiple searches and and uh, not be limited in, in, in its application. And that you have to be able to, with the cryptocurrency and the digital, it ha you have to have invisible, invisible daemon algorithms to protect the real wealth so that it couldn't be hacked because quantum computing in another dimension could crack cryptocurrency. So that's why they're developing these daemon algorithms so that the true wealth mm -hmm. of the rich yeah, will, nev will, will never ev ever the, be able to be hacked, the, so the to speak. The connections and the parallels <laughs> that we see as that kind of tracks down. And I love the 
when you're bringing back, and I think it's important to kind of gloss back over a little bit, back it up a little bit and talk about um, for a second. We've talked extensively about the, um, you know, the, the bloodlines of the Rephaim. You know, bloodlines are so important, but, you know, people have to always remember the bloodlines on both sides are so important. Yep. We're given the genealogies all the way through Jesus, right? We're seeing these things. And when it talks about Noah, the Hebrew word tamim meant uh, righteous or pure. Yep. And it's yep. the same word that they used for like the sacrificial lambs and things of that nature, showing that it was not talking yep. about the fact he was sinless or perfect. It's yep. talking about that he was pure-blooded. And that was, uh, uh, I think, a big, a big part of that too when you talk about that part. But um, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Well, it it's very important. I just let, would like to double tap that. So, the polytheist forces they like to counterfeit everything the Bible does. Mm -hmm. So we're going to get a genealogy that is going to apply to our Messiah, who's going to be returning. They keep their genealogies in that go back to their gods and the scioning that went in so that they can prove the pedigree of their dragon messiah that they're going to bring about before Jesus comes uh, so that he can counterfeit all of the things promised to Jesus uh, in his second coming or prophesied for Jesus and deceive people into accepting the dragon messiah um, as the real messiah even though it's all a hoax. So it's important to understand that that's just a counterfeiting of the of the bloodline genealogy down through David to Jesus, back to um, you know Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Noah, back to back to yeah, back to uh, Seth, and then back to uh, Adam. So it's there for a reason, and that's why you know Jesus is called the second Adam. Right, because you have that um, genealogical base, and so to have a pedigree is a requirement for the true Antichrist and it's for any you see the parallels and want to be Antichrist. Counterfeited, right? You always see it's counterfeited. Everything is, um, um, and that's that's why it's going to be a little scary, and why I think it's important for people to always test the spirits, always be looking for those things, always be a little wary. Because a, a lot of people are going to be fooled. A lot of Christians will be fooled at that time. Yeah. Sure. Well, you're going to have a false prophet who is given the power by Satan to even bring fire down from the sky and make the way for Antichrist. Well, Elijah is coming back in the time of Jesus as well, and was taken away and preserved to do that. And he brought fire down from heaven. Everything is going to be counterfeited. Armageddon's going to be counterfeited. Antichrist has to take credit for an Armageddon war before Jesus comes to complete that. So look for that in Ezekiel 38, 39, Joel 1 and 2, not Joel 3 because that's the Armageddon war. And those creatures in Joel 1 and 2 are the same creatures and in the new book, I put the descriptions side by side on the two armies there. They're the same, believe me. Uh, look forward to it in the book. And that's the Revelation 9 war. So that's where you have an army of 200 million chimera creature army 
which is part of that technology that we're heading into, um, that is going to be defeated and Antichrist is going to take credit for that and within six months move his armies in around Jerusalem and, and complete the abomination. He, everything is going to be counterfeited and moved up in time frame to do that sort of counterfeit. So, yeah, expect everything right, well, that, that Jesus that is and, promised and to do, I'm he's really going to counterfeit. To the new book. I'm pretty excited about it. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the new book and then what inspired you to do the part two? <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, I said I would never write part two. <laughs> so, because I, you know, I thought most of it had been said and I didn't want to be redundant. And, you know, I, and I and actually started another book I was 300 pages into. So, but, you know, things happen. And what I learned from doing shows and answering questions on shows um, and taking questions from the audience and emails and social media and all the interaction is, is that there was a thirst out there by Christians that I had on did not anticipate. And it's a hunger for what's not being taught in churches today. And that's prehistory and prophecy. You don't get the context of the Bible. You only get a certain slice and they don't connect the whole Bible together. And so they want to go deeper, but they can't get taught this. And if you go and ask a minister for the most part, they don't want to talk about it. And they're not taught about this in seminary schools. So People said, we really like your book, but, you know, we'd like somebody who could go super deep and just show us something in a way that nobody else has done it before. And I took that to heart and saying that, yeah, there's, you know, I can write a book that is not going to be, it's in along the same thing, but it's not redundant to the first book and it's specifically targeted at Christians. So... This is a, I would describe the new book as a 40, you know, 4,500 year investigation into the post-Diluvian House of Dragon. Um, their creation and how they show up after the flood, how they create the beast empires, how they created hybrid royal bloodlines to not go extinct, how they usurped the religions and the governments and the armies around the world. And how that affected the post-Diluvian world in terms of the geopolitical scenario early after the flood. How all of these giant nations come about that most people don't associate like the Maka theme or the Chera theme as being giant names. I'll cover off all the different giant tribes and that are listed in the Bible and their hybrids and roll that through into, and not only that, but also take that back to a patriarch so that you understand where that eponymous name or that patriarchal name would come from. And I'll roll that through all the giant wars, beginning with Genesis 14, all the Exodus wars, all the wars through the judges, through King Saul, David, and Solomon, uh, and, and show you how we know those are giant wars that were fought. And then as I do that for the Christians is, because I believe that, to understand the context of prehistory, you have to understand understand the context of prophecy, you have to understand prehistory, because so much of the meaning 
the context is in prehistory. So just as I believe the Adamites, and I cover this off, are the resolution to the angelic rebellion in the end time, all of that is sort of interconnected that falls in between. So I, I highlight the words and the, the passages that you need to understand end time prophecy, and then I roll that in into the last two sections in laying down a chronology for end time prophecy using what you learned in the first parts of the book. And in a way that if you, if you apply this methodology, you won't have any conflicts. And it doesn't sort of apply to any one of the kinds of eschatology. Uh, I'm a very sort of simple person. And I'll tell you my approach in, in, in the preface. There's, you know, 10 sort of major sort of guidelines that I like to use. And it's on display throughout the whole book. Mm -hmm. um, but the main one is, is that uh, I put everything around what Jesus said and not vice versa. And I, and, and I don't try and reimagine what the Bible says um, or deny what Jesus said uh, or reinvent what that, Jesus that said. And I don't ignore inconvenient you know, passages. It all has really, to fit. Like people, like I said, people like you guys have inspired me to, under, to, to take on those uncomfortable passages or the ones that didn't make sense. And, and if it's there, it's important. I mean, that's the whole point. But um, oh, go yeah. 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 And and it's a red flag if the approach that you're yes. you're that you're sort of following because it makes the most sense to you can't deal with the inconvenient passages. That's a red flag. Mm -hmm. If they want to put what Jesus said around what the prophet said, that's a red flag. <laughs> I mean, it's totally antithetical to what the Bible says, right? I mean, he's the word of God. All, all that prophecy comes through him. He's the spirit of prophecy. Even the book of Revelation mm -hmm. is his testimony given to the angel to show John. It has to fit. It just has to fit around what Jesus said. So if they're, if they're not following those sort of basic principles, those should be red flags. Uh, and if you can't answer questions when somebody of another approach says, well, what about this or what about that? Um, that's a problem in whatever eschatological belief that you, but you have. But once you figure it out, you don't have to worry about coming across a surprise passage. You may panic for 30 Context seconds or so, but you're going to say, no, no, I can put it really into is. these narratives because well, it, it, it always Gary, fits. One, one last thing I wanted to ask you was, you yep. know, we looked through all this. We've talked a little bit about the, the bloodlines coming up, the Nephilim and, and kind of where we're, where we're going right now. And, um, you know, our, the world's in a scary place right now. I mean, we already know that we won that we won the war overall, but there's a lot of battles along the way to get there. Um, it is. But what would you say? The one thing: what does the world need to hear right now? What do people, Christians yeah. that are are in this world today, what do they need to hear? Uh, I, I think they need to hear, or in the fig tree generation, this is a special generation for good and bad. And we're going to see things that we never thought could happen. And anything that we've seen, even in our lifetimes, isn't mm -hmm. going to hold a candle to what's coming. We can't imagine what's going to be coming. And the propaganda, the persecution, the brainwashing, um, and the things that are going to be absolutely unbelievable in terms of the technology and the signs and the wars and the catastrophes and the coming of the false prophets. 
if you don't put on the armor of God, and by doing that, you need to understand Scripture, all of Scripture, to prepare for it, you're going to get deceived. And this great delusion that's coming, I think we're, we're starting to see how so nonsensical things are. You know, for example, could you ever imagine you could get four of the Ivy League uh, CEOs or presidents sitting in front of Congress and can't condemn genocide? Who would, have, who, would, who would have thought that? But they're running the brainwashing greenhouses which are planting the seeds for genocide. So you're seeing the swamp that uh, runs this world. We're starting to see, and, and they're becoming more pervasive. So we need to understand where we came from so we understand what's coming. And that we can then not only prepare ourselves, but then we can start to communicate with people and say, here's where we are and here's what's going to be coming. And you can either believe or not believe, but you're going to see more of this and it's going to head in the direction where, where the Bible is going. And that if we do it right, we won't get ahead of biblical chronology and lose all of our credibility. So if people are saying that, and there are, um, or that what is going on in the Middle East today, that that is going to uh, bring in World War III or Armageddon, um, not for a while. It's not, it's not on the horizon yet, but people are out there saying that because you have this disturbance in, in, in the Middle East. We can understand some of the context out of, the, out, out, out of what's going on. Hamas is, is sworn to, Hezbollah, all of these Arab, Arab nations and extremists uh, in those nations, the extremists for sure, um, and they're run by wealthy people, bloodlines. They have sworn an oath to wipe Israel from the face of the earth. That's the same oath that is talked about in that Amalekite war and why that was a transgenerational thing that Israel had to deal with. And the Amalekites also persuaded the other nations, the Amalekites and the Malachim, uh, persuaded all of the nations of the Middle East to swear the same oath, which led to all of those horrific wars in the time of the Exodus and ongoing, even beyond the, uh, the, the covenant, war, covenant land wars. And they were trying to wipe Israel from the face of the earth. And this oath was even recaptured in David's time as ongoing in Psalms 83. And it lists all of the nations, and people should read that in terms of the nations that are listed. It's quite eye-opening, and if you don't know who some of those nations are, do a little bit of research. And two of those nations in Psalms 83, one is the Philistines. And this is the nation that uh, lived in the Gaza region and was the nemesis to Israel. They actually expropriated Gaza just before the Exodus. And there were Philistine hybrids that had uh, created a hybrid race through intermarrying with several kinds of giants on the island of Crete. I go through this in the New Testament, or in the, in the new book. And it's like the Cherethim, the Pelethim, the Casualtheme. Uh, those are all giant nations, and they're going to push the Abim and the Anakim and other giant groups out of that area, but they're also going to keep 
the Anakim ruling over two cities and the Avim over a city and the Philistines are going to rule two others in the Philistine pentapolis. And these are the ancestors of the Palestinians. And so they have the same blood oath. It's like it's transgenerational. One of the other nations that list, is listed in Psalms 83 is Tyr. And that was just, you know, west of Ugarit uh, and was, you know, the most powerful, one of the most powerful nations in the time of the Exodus and the time of, you know, through King David and, and, and Solomon. And that Hezbollah is located in that area and, you know, being funded by probably, you know, the trans transgenerational bloodlines and they're sworn to destroy Israel from the face of the earth. But this isn't World War III. It's going to get worse than that. It's going to get so bad to a point where Israel, so that's why you can't get ahead of the, uh, the chronology, is, is going to agree to this seven-year covenant in Daniel 9.27 in exchange for land uh, for peace. And in, also in return, they'll be able to um, do the sacrificing on the temple. But we don't have the Ten Kings yet. We don't have a universal religion. So you can't have Armageddon or world, the World War III, which is, as I talked about, Ezekiel 38, 39, Joel 1 and 2, and Revelation 9. It's, it, it's jumping ahead of the chronology. We're not in the last seven years. And so it's going to be like that. So just as the sorrows, which are earthquakes, pestilence, famine, wars, and rumors of wars, and you can also put in what Luke adds into it with the surging of the seas, um, those are going to get stronger. And these are the same catastrophes that are listed in the seal judgments in Revelation 6. And that's where 25% of the whole earth is destroyed. All of the people are destroyed. And even the kings, the bloodlines, are hiding in caves, probably in the earth somewhere, of safe havens that they've created for themselves mm -hmm. um, because they think it's the day of the Lord it's that bad but the trumpets are yet to come and that'll be 33% so it gets worse and then it would be 100% with the wrath goals in the last year of the last seven years except that Jesus steps in otherwise all flesh would be destroyed and so whatever we're seeing between now and 25% destruction is just increasing of sorrows. And that's what we're seeing now. So expect those sorrows to start to work together. So expect more pestilence and famine maybe working in, you know, with uh, part of the wars starting or the earthquakes or disasters. Or maybe it's the pestilence is just all contrived pestilences because I think all of these birth pangs are contrived. It's what the rulers of this earth, people who, who rule over those CEOs that sat from in front of Congress from, who are they? Uh, University of Pennsylvania, Harvard, um, and as they control all of the universities and all of the all of the governments and why the whole world rose up against Trump, whether or not you're a fan of Trump or not, the whole world rose up against the, him because he stood against their version of this new world order and he wanted a larger role. So um, we have to understand that 
things are just going to be moving in that direction and it's going to look bad and it's going to look apocalyptic and false prophets are going to come along and saying this is it but that's why they're the false prophets mm -hmm. and again we haven't seen for the start of the last seven years I haven't seen the two witnesses show up yet so <laughs> there's lots of yet things to happen but it can happen quickly with catastrophes particularly if they're working together. So I think we're going to see a, a continuation with that. But don't jump at everything. And again, look for the context. Um, and that's what's going to start the Gog War is to, again, they're not going to like the deal Israel got. They're not going to like how they're thriving. And they're going to try and wipe Israel from the face of the earth in the start of that war, when Antichrist comes to power, he's going to try and wipe Israel from the face of the earth, just as he's trying to wipe everybody who holds to the testimony of Jesus and God uh, in the last three and a half years. So the time of Jacob's sorrow is coming for Israel and Judah, and Israel will awaken probably by the 144,000 that are sent out in the last uh, seven years. Um, but so many things yet to sort of come about. So yeah, it's going to get worse. Uh, we should expect tribulation as Christians. Uh, we're not ever told we're going to be um, spared tribulation. In fact, we're told to expect tribulation. And so we need to look at the Bible accurately and don't look and don't have people convince you that tribulation is wrath. They're different words in Greek. They're different words as they're used as they're translated into English. Um, but I'll cover all of that in the, in, in the new book and show you how that relates into the time of Jacob's trouble, which is the cognate word for tribulation and how that works in and that and there's a tribulation so of the saints and there's a tribulation of the world to, and they're two separate tribulations. To truly scripture, to truly have God's word in our hearts and to make it part of your everyday life so that you have that ability to that, that, that discernment, the ability to um, really uh, test the spirits when we have these things coming up in the future. So, Gary, why don't you tell everybody where they can find your uh, upcoming uh, book and, and your, your uh, yeah. first book as well and any other information uh, you want to put out there? Yeah, I'll start with the, with the new book. So the new book is, uh, has been ready for printing for a while. It's gone through the queue. There's a March 12th release date for it, but it's now at the printer. So they're going to beat that date by a lot, I think. So I would expect sometime late December, early January, just my, my, my guessing. And as soon as it's, it's available, I'll be able to supply books and I'm sure Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all, everybody else will take inventory in as well. So it is, uh, you can find information about book one and book two from my website, which is the Genesis six conspiracy.com. That's Genesis six with the number six conspiracy.com. And on the website, if you go to uh, about the book, I have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters of book one and all 84 chapters of book two. So I think the table of contents in both will get your uh, interest up and the excerpts will definitely get your in, um, interest up. But that's just a drop in the bucket as to the, the information that's in both of these books. The Kindle version directly from the buy now page. So you don't have to buy it from me, but that's the easiest way to get a hold of the book is just through the site because you've got all of those options. And for book two, it's available for pre-order. 
So if you uh, want to pre-order a printed signed copy, again, it's got its own pages for that and just go to the appropriate page for, the, for, for you for that. Or if you wanted to pre-order the printed copy through barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com or amazon.ca, I've got links on there for you to link over there for book two as well to pre-order. And as soon as we get... Uh, the Amazon link for the Kindle version of Book 2 for pre-order, that'll be up uh, and connected as well. And Amazon is yet to, even though they've got the digital copy, to put it up for uh, pre-order yet. But I'm thinking the closer we get to the printing date that they'll likely do that. So if you're in interested in asking me a question or getting some additional information, I have a lot of documents I supply at no charge. So uh, ask me and just name a general topic. Don't ask for all of my documents. I have many, 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 many documents. So I need a topic and I'll send you what I have on that. And there's a contact the author uh, section for that. Um, and that's the email I will come directly through to me. It's Genesis 6 Conspiracy with the 6 again, Genesis 6 Conspiracy at gmail.com. We thank you for listening to the Dig Bible Podcast. Questions, comments, or future episode ideas, we'd love to hear from you at the dig 423 at gmail.com. If you enjoy our content, don't forget to share, subscribe, and check out our Facebook group at the Dig Podcast. Remember, you can't lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. You gotta dig.